Lean is a way to streamline operations management. So those are closely tied. So Lean, there's really three definitions. I think a lot of people might know invented or not invented, but put together by Toyota as their operations management model as a way to identify and eliminate non-value-added work in the workplace so they have a continuous improvement mindset, a deep and profound respect for the people that do the work. And so it's an employee engagement mindset. And finally, swift and even flow, which is, I don't care how variable things come into your process, your customers want it fast and it's got to come out evenly. You know, so demand could spike, customers say, so what? You promised two days, I want two days. And you're like, no, no, but we're dealing with 300% demand. Customers want swift and even flow. So Lean embraces those three things and it applies them to operations management. This is Country Club Conversations. I'm Raj Tut, founder and CEO of Storyboard Living. This show gives you actionable insights from the hard to reach top percentile in business and entrepreneurship. I think everyone deserves this type of access and I'm bringing it to you. Welcome to the club. Mitch, thank you for coming on the show. Raj, thanks for having me. It's uh, fun to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time. You have a very impressive resume. I actually, the first time we met, if I can share this, was um, at uh, a Vistage meeting that you were presenting at. Yep. And you briefly touched on your background, but I wasn't familiar with the extent of your background until I went on your website and a few other websites and dug a little deeper into your past. So you are a professor. I am. An entrepreneur. Yep. A speaker. And also a consultant. Can you give me a little bit of background on how all four of those things became a part of your personality just on a very high level? Sure. Um, I won't go back too far. It started with being an entrepreneur. When we get there, I'll talk a little bit about my grandfather, who I never met, but was a real inspiration in my life in the world of business. So I always wanted to start a company. I didn't uh, originally, not as early as you, and I heard a little bit about your story, so I always wanted to start a company, and, and, um, and that was, I worked in corporate America for a while, and that was always on my mind. And then I had an opportunity to do something that we'll call consulting uh, within the big company. It was a single day where I had to advise a customer on something, and I just fell in love with that, the nature of that work. I still remember it. Uh, it was in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I came away just thinking, that was just professionally exciting. So I gathered a few more credentials, got an MBA, and then, you know, just just thought I can start consulting, which was pretty painful, but quit my job and said, okay, now I'm a consultant. Now what? Fast forward 15 years, I think I like to call it, I had a midlife crisis. I wanted to learn how to be an academic researcher and thought that would further my business. I do want to make that the primary focus because that's why I did it. I thought, I'm going to get a doctorate And Mitch, the consultant, is going to be Professor Milstein or Dr. Milstein, and that's just going to take me to a different level, which it did, but I ended up liking academia. You work with students, young people, keeps you young, and so all those things work together to end up where I am. 
the speaking, the teaching, the consulting, and the businesses are all tied around or focused in logistics and supply chain management, correct? And operations management. So really, it started at something called operations management. We didn't know the term supply chain 25 years ago. Back then, we called it operations management. And I think probably in your business, Raj, you may still do. I think you have a VP of operations and so it started out as, as operations broadly defined, service industries like yours, distribution, manufacturing. And then the doctorate I got in supply chain, and to be perfectly honest with everybody, that I added in to the mix of the things that I was doing. And that became part of the what I speak about, what I consult on, what I do research in, and what I teach. So it became the focal point for everything. But I, I call it operations and supply chain management. Operations and supply chain management, that's a field that I would imagine most kids don't grow up dreaming about. So I'd love to hear more about kind of how you grew up. Uh, perhaps what I really would find interesting is how, how far back you can even trace your family tree to the U.S. and how that kind of tied into the way you grew up and who you are today. Oh, fantastic. You're going to get me on a favorite topic, which is my grandfather, Willie Milstein, he was such an entrepreneur, and I think back in those days, and he came to the U.S. in the uh, early 20s, late teens. I looked it up. I can't remember. And then my grandmother as well has her own story. But Willie Milstein was really the inspiration. And I think back then, I don't know if everybody was an entrepreneur, but you know, lots of people, very few people worked for some corporation. And, and so Willie, he was such an entrepreneur, Raj, that I called him a hustler. And, and I mean that in the most positive ways. I don't know if you know those people that they're starting businesses and they're doing that. And he was doing some loan sharking and he did property development and rental and he ran restaurants. And so I, I never met him. He passed away before uh, I died, but sort of the legend was there. And, and the other thing is uh, my father is a pretty tall guy uh, and I'm a, you know, a a average height, but Willie was like 5'3 or 5'4. So he was just this small energy and all these amazing stories about him. And, you know, as I was going through my professional life, I kind of uh, always wanted to, back to that entrepreneur thing, I wanted to start a business, run a business, feel like I made what I earn. So that's that's where it goes back to. It's It's a guy that I actually never met. I've got portraits of them at different ages in my office and, uh, and, you know, kind of look over for inspiration every now and then when, as we know, it gets tough when you're worried about making payroll or some deals go south. And I kind of look over and wonder what Willie went through. That's fascinating. I would imagine that you know so much about Willie, even though you never met him because your parents were sharing those lessons or his story with you. Yeah, yeah, it came from my pop and uh, and actually other parts of the family. So he was just sort of so well-known. By the way, I'm going to go into an educational component if I can. He was so well-known in the family that the stories came from all over. You know, all kinds of stuff. Like him and my grandmother went to Florida, and uh, they owned a bar restaurant at the time, among all the other things that, that they did together. They went to Florida. They got a baby alligator. You know, stupid them. They brought it back. They kept it in the boiler room, and if fights broke out in the bar, Willie or my grandmother would go get the alligator. It was, you know, not that long, three feet tall, but still, and they'd, they'd hold it by the tail and wave it in front of everybody, and the place would clear out and the fight would break up. <laughs> you know? So those are, those are the types of stories you get from, from Willie in what he did. And, and I do want to say one other thing that I, I think about is the money that he saved paid for my college. 
And that's something that my wife and I are doing now. And so there's more sophisticated ways to do it, 529 funds, but we've put away money for a pretty extended part of our family. Uh, currently, it's five young children, teenagers, to pay for at least a, a portion of their college. And I think about, you know, a guy I never met paid for, for my initial undergrad degree, which, you know, set me on this path. I would say with the success that you've achieved thus far, you've definitely paid it back. And it sounds like you're paying it forward as well, which is is great to hear. When you went to college, was that to major in supply chain management or something along those lines? Or, or were you maybe going down another path? Yeah, I was going down, you know, the path I was going down was called making money. Now, I probably should have chosen a different field like finance, um, but I think I was always a little bit mathematically oriented not as much as I think people would think, given my degree, uh, which is in a pretty heavy math field. But as when I was in high school, and interestingly enough, my father, who was a very noble man, was a civil servant. So his father, you know, this entrepreneur hustler, making money and losing money. You know, Willie was, he, he, he lost a little bit less than he made over his lifetime. And my father kind of just, you know, went down a different path helping, he worked with uh, handicapped people, super noble profession. And again, Willie, Willie left us enough money for me to go to college. I should say Willie and Sadie, my grandmother, but not a whole lot more. So we lived a lower middle income life, you know, which is fine. You know, went on vacation, I think once or twice growing up and, you know, went out to eat maybe once or twice a year. And I always wanted more. And so I chose engineering figuring engineering and I'm going to get an MBA and that kind of combo is going to be the thing that I need in order to, this, this sounds banal talking to you about it, but honestly, to make the money that I wanted to make to live the life I wanted to live and, and to give back in the way that I wanted to. We also have a, I'm a professor at UMSL, University of Missouri, St. Louis, and my wife and I also have an endowment for scholarship that we fund scholarships out of for students at UMSL. That's awesome. I didn't know that. I'm learning something new every day. Uh, I feel like I was doing some research and I learned a bunch. And just this, the short conversation so far, I'm learning a bunch as well, just yeah. uh, about you as a person. Uh, so is UMSL what brought you to St. Louis? Because you're originally from the East Coast. You didn't go to college in the Midwest, I don't think. My MBA I did. I went... I went to, but not your undergrad, correct? Right, right. I went to Rutgers University in New Jersey. And uh, I worked... Actually, I worked in Texas in a factory, my first job out of college, for a couple of years. That, that wasn't the best place for me to, uh, to spend my career. I came back to Pennsylvania, and then corporate America moved me to St. Louis. The company I worked for bought a division of Monsanto, which that name doesn't exist anymore, but that used to be an idea factory. They spun off so many different companies from the research they did, and one of them my employer bought. I was a young engineer. They said, hey, we're looking for people to move to St. Louis. I just got newly married, and I turned to my wife and I said, hey, you know, what, what do you think? Let's give it a shot. Three years, and then we'll figure it out. And that was 30 years ago. Wow. So you've been in St. Louis for 30 years. Yeah. I like to say I'm not from St. Louis, but my son is. <laughs> sure. So the 30 years that you were in St. Louis, those are the 30 years where you really made the strides to be the person you are today in terms of the entrepreneurship, the uh, academia, and the consulting. Yeah. That's right. And the speaking as well. So the entrepreneurship came first. And what was that first business? And roughly, you know, where were you in terms of your life? And how old were you? 
Yeah, yeah, a couple of things. That business was the consulting firm, so it's interesting. Okay. I've started three companies, depending on how you count. One was a food company, one's a software company, and, and the first one, original one, was consulting, and that's still the best one. I get diverted every now and then, but I sort of keep coming back to what my real profession is, which is consulting, you know, the advising and, and working with companies in the field that I love, which is operations and supply chain. So 25 years ago, it's actually 25-year anniversary this past August, I started Supply Velocity to do operations. Again, supply chain wasn't even a word, even though I was smart enough to put it in the name of the company. But that was the start, just uh, doing supply chain consulting. And I remember because I was looking at changing jobs and moving to North Carolina. Um, there was a really good job in North Carolina. My wife wanted to live in North Carolina. She's an East Coast person. And, and I, I, re I read a book, and a lot of people have read this because it's kind of been out for a while, Millionaire Next Door. And um, it's kind of maybe out, somewhat out of print now, but for a time, it was fantastic. And I, I read that book, and it said most millionaires have lived in the same town, started their business in that town. And I'm like, I'm in St. Louis. The opportunities are here. We're staying. And then, and then you know, the mission changed as, as well into, you know, what can we do to make it the best possible place, you know, for everybody to live? The 25 years... Uh, that you've been in business with Supply Velocity and the companies you've worked with, they're some of the biggest names that you can imagine locally, nationally. And I'm sure you've worked with a ton of small companies as well because you've worked with over 100 of them. Yep. Given your experience in operations management, supply chain management, what would you do or what did your typical process look like back then when you were taking on a consulting gig versus now? Is there like a set checklist you have for the first 30 days or, or is every case or company or issue different? The difference back then and the difference now is, is really it just comes back down to this. Back then, if there was an opportunity, I wanted to help solve it. And so we, we would attempt in our sales process to sort of dive right in. And now we've learned that sometimes going a little slower actually turns out to be going much faster because you get sustainable results. So the first thing that we do now is we do what we call an assessment. And we say, hey, you know, yes, I could help you with that warehouse. I could help you with your inventory. I could help you create a lean strategy. But what I'm going to do first is just assess what the opportunities are in your company to make sure, and uh, you set in on this presentation, which is something that we've sort of created, which we call lean system design. It's really blending lean operations and supply chain together and saying, you know what? I know you want help here, right? You might want help with your maintenance operations, but let's just assess the whole system and, and make sure that there aren't other things that are gonna, that have to get fixed first. And, and so we look a little more holistically uh, you know, we've been around longer. We kind of have the bona fides that we can uh, get away with that and do it. But I would say that's the difference. That assessment, which we've been doing now for 10, 12 years, and now every time I want to go around that process because I'm like, oh, we can just go straight to the proposal and figure this out. My partners will say, hey, that's not our process. Our process is assessment, analysis, design, implementation. And so I would say if that four-step checklist at the highest level that's now our process. Back then, we're like, let's just go. And sometimes we'd be working on the wrong problem. 
That makes sense. You mentioned something that I found very interesting. You said blending lean operations and supply chain management. Yes. So for those of us that don't know, what's the difference between the three? Because I, I feel like if you don't know the difference, they can all be viewed as one and the same. So can you kind of give me just your opinion on what the difference is between the three when you say blending them together? Sure. You know, lean lean is a way to streamline operations management. So those are closely tied. So lean there's really three definitions. I think a lot of people might know invented or not invented, but put together by Toyota as their operations management model as a way to identify and eliminate non-value-added work in the workplace. So they have a continuous improvement mindset, a deep and profound respect for the people that do the work. And so it's an employee engagement mindset. And finally, swift and even flow, which is, I don't care how variable things come into your process, your customers want it fast, and it's got to come out evenly. You know, so demand could spike. Customers say, so what? You promised two days. I want two days. And you're like, no, no, but we're dealing with 300% demand. Customers want swift and even flow. So Lean embraces those three things, and it applies them to operations management. This, this idea of Lean system design came from blending my supply chain knowledge that I've gained. It's been a long time now, 15 years ago going back to school and getting my doctorate. And it was really about supply chain is an interconnectedness. It's a system. You know, suppliers and transportation and production and distribution and, and you know, delivery and return and planning. And I kind of looked at supply chain and I looked at lean and, and they're never spoken about together. And I said, well, those really are kind of, if we put the two together, we create this lean system design. And what it allows us to do is, I think even, Raj, companies like yours at first might think, well, we're not a supply chain company. We do apartments. But a lean system? Sure, I can do that. And then if I can get that mindset, I can say, well, look at all the paint that you've got and look at all the plumbing supplies that you have. And I'm like, well, you really are a supply chain company. But it lets us get people thinking about supply chain that maybe never did think about it before. And with that same three key mindset, identify and eliminate non-valuated work, deep and profound respect for the people that do the work, and swift and even flow. And so, and by the way, people think that I've been thinking this way for decades, but really it took a two decades of working in these areas and all of a sudden, it, it, I don't want to say it came to me, but it kind of came to me. And I thought, oh, this is how the two come together. And so we've only been speaking about it and promoting it since last year. Interesting. Your your presentation was so effective that I thought you've been doing that same presentation for a number of years. So that's it's interesting that you say it's relatively new. Uh, so when I think of lean or when I used to think of lean prior to your presentation, I was thinking about manufacturing companies. Mm -hmm. The same thing for supply chain management. So what you're saying is lean and supply chain management and your your system can effectively be implemented in more or less any type of company. Is that correct? Absolutely any type of company. And so when I start off that presentation, which by the way, I remember the first time I actually did that presentation and, and I had note cards. And so during breaks, I would look at the note cards and I remember somebody came over to me. I'm like, oh, you must have presented this a hundred times. And I didn't want to tell them, no, this is the first. <laughs> <laughs> Even a brain surgeon does brain surgery the first time. So yeah, by, at this time, I'm, I've done it tens and tens of times, but I can remember the first that I did. So when I start that presentation off, I look around and it's like any lawyers, any accountants, 
any IT companies, any software companies, I look around for the companies that I think, think to themselves, this doesn't apply to me. And I just tell them, this is to you. We're designing this for you to implement. And then I'll go backwards a little bit and talk about hospitality and you know, restaurants, hotels, apartments. And that becomes easier because I'm like, you move material all the time. All you're doing is moving material. And then I'll go back into distributors who also don't think it applies to them. And I'll talk about, well, they've got inventory and they've got fork trucks. But I designed lean system design around all those companies that have no physical anything going through their process. And how can they get all of that benefit? Because they have a process. And, you know, and you get lucky, Raj. Uh, Like I had a very large accounting firm here in town. And they actually took a chance. They're like, we want to be lean. And, you know, I, I might have at first looked at them and said, wow, this is like, this is a first for me. But they came to me and said, we want to be lean. And, you know, doing taxes, doing your annual audit, guess what? It's not any different than you turning over an apartment, which is no different than a distributor filling an order or a construction company building an apartment complex. And it's all a process. Is that process one that's followed in the software that you also co-founded or founded? That software company was actually an inventory optimization software. I told you I was a mathematician, so my partner, I built some, today they're called machine learning models or artificial intelligence, and it helps finished goods distributors come up with the optimal amount of inventory. So that software is very niche, focused on, on that application. To be honest, every time I start one of these other companies, the food company was another one, I find myself spending a few years there and somehow I end up back in the consulting as being my primary motivator. It seems to me like helping others is really a passion for you, whether it's consulting or teaching. Is that sharing of knowledge or just expertise something that really drives you? And is that your, what you would say is your primary passion in life, just sharing the expertise that you've built over the decades? You know, I I won't share my whole purpose because it gets kind of personal, uh, but one of them is that there's a couple of key things there, and I I say this to myself once a week, and that is help my clients and colleagues be successful. A simple statement, but once a week I say to myself, why am I here? You know, why did I end up in wherever I ended up? There's got to be a reason for me being here, and I strive towards that purpose, Raj. And one of them is help clients and colleagues be successful. And the other one is help my students grow their knowledge and careers. So I say that to myself and, you know, you say it enough times and whether it's a passion or it's my purpose. So if if I have a reason to be here now, I've got a a bunch of other things around my family uh, that are very important there. But those are two things that I remind myself I'm here to do that. That's awesome. I think the way that you present yourself and even the fact that, for example, you offer your time very generously really reflects that. When you say that, uh, you know, you've worked with 100 plus companies as a consultant, and I'm sure in terms of the students you've taught, there's hundreds, if not thousands that you've taught. Do you have any that come to mind where you had an unforgettable experience? Maybe it was just a mess prior to you going into a company, for example, and you were able to turn it around. Do you have any examples like that 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 you care to share or or you think might be extremely interesting? I've got lots of them, but one one company jumps to mind, and then actually I have a student that comes to mind. Can I say her name? Uh, Yeah, if you're okay with it. (laughs) Hopefully she's okay with it. So for one company, and this this is my third client, 
you look back, by the way, it's 153, but you know, who's counting clients that we've worked <laughs> with? And as you mentioned, big companies, you know, the, the big brand names that you could say, and, and then lots of companies, Raj, just like yours, the, the, the medium-sized businesses, that's our bread and butter, but we do work with large corporations. But this one was a, a medium-sized company, client number three, and they were a manufacturing company. They needed so much help. Now, by the way, I want to caution that they were a successful money-making company uh, about to turn over to the third generation of the family running the company. So there's no disaster. There's no negative comment to me. I have no critique. I never have critique for my clients. And there were almost all of them successful, well-run companies that want to do better. And that was this company. But they needed a lot of help. And to get their product to their customer took them about six weeks. We took it to two days. They were throwing out about 9% of scrap rate, we call it. 9% of their product uh, got scrapped and we got it down to much less than 1%. They were operating on three shifts. We figured out how to do it in a shift and a half. We broke down walls. And when I made that, I mean that figuratively and literally that we broke down walls because one of the things that we wanted to do was, was connect two things that were that were on the other side of the wall. And I went to the owner, Jeremy, and I said, hey, can we, can we take down that wall? That might be asking too much, but it would really help if we took down that wall. And much to my surprise, he is a very disciplined business owner, and we took down that wall. And you know, now they're seen as a world-class manufacturing operation. And uh, earlier, they were getting complaints from their customers. And and they're, they're fantastic people. They're incredibly genera- generous. And so it really feels good to help somebody like that. Can you share some of what you implemented or helped them implement? Because those are massive improvements that we're talking about here. Yeah, you know, a l- lot of lean comes down to those words, swift and even flow. And, and, you know, you go, well, how do you do that? And And actually, the way you do it, in many cases, is stuff that's been around for decades, hundreds of years, maybe even millennia. And that's doing time studies and doing mapping. And so what we do is we look at the current state. We, we get some data, you know, how long things take, how far people travel, how much you use that particular widget. You know, if you use a lot of, of a certain type of paint, then we want that front and center, easy to access. And, and we laid out the process, both the physical and the information flow, to make it easy for people to do that work. And so that's really what it came down to is designing through time studies and mapping and gathering some data and doing a little bit of mathematics around it, calculating how many people we need, calculating how much inventory we need to create swift and even flow so that you're not making a thousand of something and pushing it somewhere. You're making one of something and handing it off to the next person or making 10 of something and handing it off to the next person. And, and that person knows exactly what they should be getting, building quality into the process so that every time there's a handoff, I know that I should be getting this. I do a quick visual check. I may do a measurement. If it doesn't, I didn't waste a thousand and scrap them. I give them back to the person. I work with them. We're teammates. And remember, deep and profound respect for the people that do the work. And so we create that teamwork environment. Now, this company has gone on to implement incredible automation. But first, they made their manual operation lean. And now they've, they've gone back and, and automated it and proved productivity. Not a layoff in sight. They've just grown the company and didn't need to add people because people are now working with their automation. Um, so I don't know if that kind of gives a, a, a quick feel of how lean works in this 
Yeah, it does. Uh, so it doesn't have to be this example. It could be any company you've worked with. Do you have an example that comes to mind of something that was in hindsight, maybe very obvious or easy to implement, but the company wasn't seeing it or the leadership wasn't seeing it? I'll actually maybe say that there was something that I didn't see. So we worked with a company. I, I remember the project. This is a long time ago, but we work a lot on inventory. It's sort of a natural part of our supply chain and lean services, getting people to have the right amount of inventory of whatever inventory that is. Again, could fit your world, could be a finished goods distributor that you buy that paint from, could be the manufacturer that has to keep a certain amount of raw, raw materials on hand. And I remember the first time we worked with that, it was we were working on a bus distributor's sales process. Because I, I wrote a white paper, an article on lean sales or something, and, and someone said, hey, that might make sense. Actually, it was a Vistage member and a Vistage chair that looked at that and said, I think it could apply to this company. I want you to talk to Gary. And, and I talked to him, and, it, and, it, and it, he thought it made sense, and we worked on. And while we were doing that, they had a warehouse. And I kind of looked at that. And I'm like, why do you have so, that much of that? And, why do you have, and how much is that turning? And, and all of a sudden... You know, we looked at that inventory as a tremendous opportunity to satisfy customers. I think people look at inventory as it's costing me money, but we look at it as a competitive weapon for fulfilling customer demand or satisfying customers. And so I know that wasn't a specific, but that was almost a wake-up call to us in my firm that that's another place that we could apply those same type of principles, a little bit of math, a little bit of mapping, a little bit of data gathering, and create again what's always the goal, eliminate non-valuated work. Well, in this case, it's eliminating unnecessary purchases and creating swift and even flow so you have what you need to take care of customers. And I'll never forget that, that it was just sort of looking around the warehouse thinking, I belong here. We should be helping you with that. And they said yes. And now inventory is you know, easily a third of the work we do is help maybe more half with inventory. In terms of inventory, if you were, before we sat down and started recording, you walked through our warehouse here. If you were to just give me one or two things that jumped out to you in terms of things that we should do, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts there. And just for context, uh, we're, of course, uh, a, an apartment owner operator. And uh, our warehouse is, it's not overly disorganized, but it's one area of opportunity for us to improve upon where we know we want to get better in terms of our inventory management. So was there anything that stood out to you when you walked through there for the two or three minutes that we spent in there? Yeah. You know, one of the key lean principles, and it falls under this lean system design, is visual workplace. So I would say it's, it's even hard to manage your inventory until your workplace is easy for you to see all that inventory. And, and I'm not just talking about the consumables, I'm talking about the tools and the, and the ladders and everything that you could use, the, 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 the equipment that you might use in order to do your work or to take care of your apartments. And so if there's anything that's, still, again, you, you can't be a lean company if you don't embrace visual workplace and that's labeling and it's cleanliness and it's making sure there's no clutter so that if you don't use something, you get rid of it or preferably give it to goodwill or, or something like that. 
And then you set standards. So you might have some posters up that say, hey, this is what this place should look like at the end of the day. In the middle of the day, people are working. It's okay for it to, to look a little bit messy. But at the end of the day, it, you put it back, it should look like this. And then finally, you as president of the company, Raj, are committed to it. So you're going to go walk through it once a week and do what we call it, uh, an audit and give the results to your VP of ops and say, here's the things that I saw. And so our clients that embrace this the most, they're the leanest, they're the most profitable, and the, uh, the people in charge of the company are in charge of this effort. When we talk about visibility, would software also tie into that in terms of, you know, if we have some sort of inventory management software where you can see exactly what kind of stock we have and what we have on hand? Yeah, you know, when it gets into visibility, I'll say, uh, and I like to talk about uh, this term, it's uh, what I call in business, I call it the F word in business, and that's forecasting. I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> uh, you probably were. Uh, people have a lot of words for that. And so um, I, I think visibility of, you know, and, and you could go, hey, my forecast is inaccurate. And I'll be like, well, sure, pick your DD of preference. And they're probably good at forecasting, but the rest of us are just humans we got to deal with the fact that we're not going to have perfect forecasts. And if you can get over that, you go, that's visibility. And so it, it's, it's not right, but it's, it's better than a total guess or it's better than somebody who's buying your products just going, well, I take you know, what, I, what I use the last three months and I average it out and that's what I buy. And I don't know if you have seasonality in your business, but I yeah, would, we do. Yeah, I, I think almost everybody does. And I would guess that looking back three months and projecting that forward may not be the best way to figure out how much you need to buy. And so visibility into potential demand turns right into inventory. I'm sure over the last 20 plus years, you've seen um, software play a bigger and bigger role in business processes, inventory management, just that forecasting, absolutely everything. Uh, when you first started out, was it more so manual processes for inventory or other business processes as well? You know, starting out, starting out, I don't want to say everything was manual, but the, the mathematics and the ease of use of the software, it just became easier. And so forecasting is an example of that, that, you know, those tools might be beyond what you could afford, well, now they're becoming pretty affordable and much easier for mid-sized businesses to use. So I think everything is moving towards, and by the way, as this is happening, as everything's moving towards being easier to use, the people that are really good at, at it, and there's one company that's really good at it, and they're called Amazon. I like to call them the big A because they're out there. They keep moving the bar. But eventually that pulls down to the mid-sized companies. In fact, my consulting work, you know, a lot of it revolves around how can I take the mathematics, the capability, all those things that Amazon does so well, and how can I spread it mostly to mid-sized businesses? And we got corporate clients because they've kind of figured out that we know what we're doing. But we started the company to help, you know, the, the average operationally oriented mid-sized company and, and some of it is software. Some of it is, by the way, software, if you really look at what it is, oftentimes it's called mathematics. That's why as a computer science, the people that write the code are all mathematicians. And I think that's the thing people forget about. They think it's just code. But if you're going to write code, you got to know math. And if we could help our clients understand that math, if we can make it easy to use, then you know, they, can, they can gain those advantages. 
just like Amazon does. I'm paraphrasing here, but when you say you want to bring Amazon to the mid-sized company, how are you yourself or your company staying on top of what the leaders are doing in terms of operations management? How are you finding out or, or just staying ahead of the curve so that you can bring it to the mid-sized company? Yeah, I'm going to make a quick left turn and then I'm going to come back here because people often ask me what I do. And I usually start off with saying, well, I've got two jobs. And they're like, well, how can you have two jobs? At this point in my career, I'm not working the 90 hours that I did when I, you know, the first 15 years when, you know, waking up at two in the morning was like, cool, I can work another few hours. I was excited about that. That's not the case anymore, but it's synergy. And so how do I personally do that? And that's where my job as a professor comes into play. And so I talk about my teaching, and that's an incredibly important part of being a professor. And an equally important part is doing academic research. And that's writing research articles that go in scholarly journals that nobody reads except mostly us professors or the people at Amazon (laughs) (laughs) and Google and Apple and all those other companies. And so basically, if you have a PhD, that means that you're into this type of stuff. And so I'm reading the things that academic researchers and corporate researchers are doing before the software ever gets made. And scientists from Amazon do publish all of these companies. They do publish. Probably scientists from Apple publish the least, but even then they will get their uh, information out there in the research literature, and we have to read it. And so that's kind of the nuts and bolts way that I can do that. That's the synergies so that I don't have to work 90 hours a week, you know, two times 45 in order to, uh, to make my living as both a professor, consultant, as you said, and as a, uh, as a speaker. That makes a lot of sense. I, I never thought of it that way. So you mentioned the PhD was one part passion and another part wanting to bolster the consulting. People are more likely to go to a doctor versus just a random consultant or um, a true professional and you have that credential in hand. So um, when we talk about you being a professor, was that a part or a decision that was partly made for the same reason? Or was that a decision you made entirely due to you wanting to pursue your passion in teaching? No, so I didn't have a passion in teaching. I was doing consulting, and I'll never forget this, Raj. I was on, if anybody's from St. Louis that's listening to this, you know 141 southbound can get backed up. So I was driving from my house in Chesterfield. I have a little hobby called mixed martial arts. So I was going to my MMA school, which is in Fenton, And I was on 141, and it was total backup. And one of my colleagues uh, called me, and he said, I found in town a part-time PhD program in supply chain management. He's like, Mitch, let's do it. He ended up not doing it, and I ended up doing it. And it's funny, because the professors, who now know I became a professor, but the professors saw right through me. By the way, I know the words. Anytime you talk to a professor, talk research and teaching, and, and, they, they, and I'm like, oh, I love research and teaching, but I hadn't really taught, and I didn't really know what research was, and they saw right through me. Because they tell me later, they're like, yeah, Mitch, we knew you just wanted to use it to, to kind of drive your consulting business a little further. But that was the primary motivator, is how can I, in the most base way, Raj, I remember to my clients, and they own a distributor in Chicago, and they're both Harvard MBAs. One of them came from McKinsey. And anyway, Harvard MBA, so arguably the best uh, business school in the world. 
And I have an MBA from a, a, you know, very, a ranked school, but it's not Harvard. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, like, what do I have that they don't? And I said, what could I have that they don't? And all those things came together, and I decided to get a, a doctorate, a PhD in supply chain management as a differentiator. It turned out to be a driver of knowledge. You talked about how can I stay on top of not the latest trends, because we got to get there before the trends. And then, you know, guess what? Uh, by the way, I did love research, and I do publish research mostly in e-commerce supply chain network design. That's sort of a speciality of mine. And then you get up in front of a classroom and you see a student, and you mentioned a company that I helped, not turn around, but, but helped tremendously. And, and I'll never forget there was a student in the same situation. I wouldn't say her last name, but Ashley's her first name. And it was business statistics. Oh, everybody hates that class, right? As soon as you say that word, we don't even call it that anymore. We call it analytics now, it sounds better, but it's still basically statistics. And she took it for the third time in my class because the first two didn't work out. And she got an A. She got an F, a D, and then an A, which is a pretty good job. I mean, I think originally she was hoping for a C just so she could say I took it, but she got an A and I started talking to her and I'm like, Ashley, this is working for you. And by the way, have you ever thought about supply chain? I don't know, marketing or finance. Like you said, nobody wakes up and says, you know, my, I want my kid to be a supply chain professional. It's accounting, finance, marketing, management, maybe information systems. We almost never get that first thought. And she went into it and she excelled. Everything from that point forward was straight A's. I helped her get her first job out of college, which was a huge upgrade. She was working kind of an administrative type position. And you made a difference in somebody's life. You grew somebody's knowledge and career, and that kind of started it. So I actually keep a list of people that I think I did that with Raj. And it's not thousands, but after all these years, 10 years of doing it, I've got 19 people that I think to myself, you know what, I'm, I made a difference. I like changed the trajectory of where they might have been going. Because I don't think Ashley, who is now an operations management manager and wants to be COO of a company, I'll give you your name, by the way, and... And maybe, she, you know, she can come here work at Storyboard because she's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah, that just to go back, that's how all those things kind of came together. So I did it for the profession and I stayed for the, the love of the students and the research. That's great to hear. This is a kind of a random question, but I've had some teachers or professors that I feel like made a mark on my life. But I've never reached out to them to say thanks because I don't know if they get bombarded by students just thanking them and, and they don't really want to hear it. Just for, uh, you personally, do you like to hear that? Or, or I mean, I'm sure you like to hear it, but would you encourage an Ashley or the Ashleys of the world to go out and reach, reach out to that person that made the difference? I'm trying to think if, by the way, except for Ashley, who actually does do that because she'll still call me with a question. And uh, by the way, a little secret for, for you and everybody else that might be listening. If you had a professor and you have some tough problem that is their expertise, even if they're a consultant, I guarantee you they're going to help you. And so I helped her work through something that people pay me in the consulting business to help because she was my student. But for the most part, for the most part, you lose touch and that's okay. No negative there. But if somebody was to get back in touch with me or even five, 10 years later and ask me for help getting a job or can, we're on it. It's a little, little uh, hidden secret. Professors do what they do 
for you know the love of knowledge and the love of helping students, and it's not going to stop. So they're a resource for your whole life, and if you use them, then you'll benefit. That's a very helpful tip, and I appreciate it. So the consulting, teaching, speaking, all these things, there's synergy around all of them. The one piece that I'm still confused about that I'm hoping you can shed some light on because I'm not seeing the synergy is when you started a food production company. (laughs) That is the one outlier, in my opinion. Can you give some background on how that idea came about and, and when or where you were in your career overall when you started that company? Sure. I think uh, Supply Velocity, the consulting firm, was around 10 years old. By the way, there won't be any logic there other than, you know, remembering that Willie was, you know, company after company and doing this and hustling that. And I just thought, you know, let's do number two. And, and uh, I always think about starting a company that, and somewhere I read that the hardest part of, about getting started is getting started. And so I just thought, I'm just going to do it. And there were business reasons to do it. So consulting tends to be large projects, rather lumpy in demand. And the food business is, you know, very small purchases, pretty steady demand. So there there were reasons that I thought that from a pure cash flow perspective, this would be beneficial. But part of me was just like, I want to do it. And so I'm going to do it. And let's just go do it. (laughs) So there was no more thinking than than that. I'm not sure that it should have more thinking than that. Sure. Because we just got started. When we started the third company, the software company, again, part of it was, should we, shouldn't we? Anytime I ask them, I ask myself that question, I, we should. And so it was really just nothing more than that. The food production company was Andrea's Gluten-Free. Yes. Where's that company today? And uh, you know what exactly is that company producing or doing? Yeah. So um, this is kind of an interesting uh, story. I would like to say that, uh, and I mean this with, with all the, the greatest respect for, for Andrea, I've been married and continually married and, and happily married for 30 years now. It's our 30-year anniversary. Uh, we got married the year we moved to St. Louis. And yet I totally understand divorce, Raj. And actually, not only that, but I understand that, you ever hear these couples that like right at the, the wedding, one of them says to, me, to themselves, this is probably a mistake. Or I probably shouldn't do this. And uh, so as, as Andrea, who had the food knowledge and the recipe and all the cooking know-how, and I thought I was going to bring the business experience, some fun, knowledge of funding and financing, and launch the company. And I remember our first discussion was about packaging. And as we're like going back and forth on it, I'm just thinking to myself, wow, this is not synergy. <laughs> this is not collaboration. And so we lasted about, I don't know, three or four more years. I sold her my share. Uh, and I understand last year, the year before, she sold the company. So she, she kept it going as a gluten. It actually started out at not as gluten-free. It started out as a candy company. Okay. Our candy happened to be gluten-free. And I learned that from talking to customers. That was my role to go out and sell. And then it sort of morphed and we realized that, hey, this gluten-free thing that now this is 15 years ago. And so we were trying to get in on the front end of it. But as a partner a partnership, we weren't great partners. And I had other things that I could do. I think I was starting my PhD right about then. So I was like, you know what, Andrea, this has got your name on it. Even though technically I own more than you, let's figure out a price and, uh, and we'll work. By the way, I'm making it sound a little more harmonious than it actually was. But it all ended up fine. Andrea ran it, sold it, and you know, good for her. Sure. That makes sense. So (laughs) one question I was actually going to ask you is how you manage to juggle all the various things you're doing. But it sounds like 
a part of it or maybe a small part of it is you had or have partners. Is that a big key to how you're able to juggle all these different things? Or is it your team? Is it, are you applying lean to your personal life? Uh, how are you able to do it? <laughs> yeah. You know, I love that saying that if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, bring people with you. I never enjoyed the thought. I remember when I was just me, uh, by the way, I had a, a you know, near death experience in the company as well. Um, and it was around 2003, 2004, uh, where we were really successful, hired a bunch of consultants, not their fault, entirely my fault. They were all the wrong people, and we collapsed down to just me. So it, it was terrible, terrible time in my personal life. Everything was awful, depression, not sleeping, you know, not, not, it was a absolutely terrible time. And this was supply velocity? This was supply velocity, yeah. So we soared, we were doing amazing you know, couldn't hire people fast enough. And then there was, a, there was a recession. It actually didn't impact most of the economy, a lot of it, but it impacted the stuff we were working on. And we, we, just, we just crashed and burned. It came down to me. And I'm a really good consultant. And so I was actually, when it was just me again, like it was when I started, I was pretty successful. And I was building my clients and building a backlog. And it always seemed to me to fulfill more, more demand, help more companies, and bring people along with you. And I remember I hired this guy, Ray. He's been with me for 17 years now. And then it kind of went from there. So I think the idea of my partners is part of it. I would say there's one thing that I didn't make a mistake on. It's all of these ventures had some synergy. So a food company is an operation, and I'm an operations expert. And so I was able to apply expertise uh, to that. And of course, if you're in business, then you sell. I don't care what you do, you sell. It's, I like to call it the Lord's profession. And so I knew how to sell and I knew operations management. And so there were synergies there. Certainly with the job as a professor, there's tremendous synergies there. I mean, that overlap is incredible. You know, the same stuff I'm teaching my students, I might offer to some of my clients as a corporate workshop. Or the stuff I'm offering to my clients, I can bring into the classroom to help my students grow their knowledge and careers. So it's not just the typical, oh, we got to learn statistics, but I can actually take the real examples from a business world, um, you know, in order to, to help uh, people see the application. So I would say if there's one thing that I've always gone for, not naturally, it just sort of happened, is, is where's the synergy? And if it exists, then I've got some overlap and I can maybe do two things instead of one. When you teach a course or you have a corporate workshop, I'm sure you have something in mind that you want your students or the folks attending to walk away with. Typically, what's the key takeaway you're trying to give people when you're talking about operations, supply chain management? I mean, the, the key takeaway is growing their knowledge. I always like to say, if you took one thing out of any of my workshops, if you walked away with one thing, and including you, Raj, if there was just one thing you walked away from, it's victory to me. But I think even stepping back, you know, what, what do people want from employees? You know, so again, students could be students in the university, students could be, I, I wouldn't call my corporate clients students, but certainly they could. And I think if there's something that differentiates a high performers, it's the desire to learn. And so what do I really, really want? I want them to grow their knowledge. I want them to push out the boundaries of knowledge. I think of that as like a, like a balloon that you're pushing out from the inside. You know, your brain is a balloon. And could I like expand that boundary by, you know, just a, a half an inch 
in one direction. And so now in that little nook of your brain, you've got supply chain knowledge or you've got lean knowledge or you've got analytics knowledge that you didn't have before. And, you know, yeah, some of it's going to go way over time, but not all of it. And so you've just pushed out the boundaries of your knowledge. And so I love that idea that I'm helping people just like a balloon, except I'm not blowing into it and making the whole thing bigger. I'm just taking a little piece of it and expanding that, that barrier. And so now you've proved you can learn. I mean, I don't know how much you hire for what you know, but I like to think about hiring for people what they could learn. And by the way, it's hard to figure that out, who can do that, but, but that, that's the real goal. By the way, I didn't actually even think about this until you asked me. So I did not have that ready for, as an answer. It sounded like you've said that a million times. <laughs> it came out very naturally. So I appreciate you sharing. In terms of like some of the companies that you've been to, like we talked about before, do you have any top mistakes that you see regularly? We talked about some of your big wins or some of the things that you've implemented, but are, are there common mistakes you see regardless of the industry or the type of company? Yeah, I'm going to answer a little differently than maybe what you're uh, expecting because where lean and supply chain principles, but really lean, because lean has got that whole sort of philosophical nature. And where lean doesn't stick is almost always, not, not entirely, by the way, but almost always due to management ch- turnover. It's one reason that privately held businesses has been our mainstay. Uh, and by the way, people talk about you know, third generation and, and how, you know, you turn over the family and the businesses fail. I don't see that. That whole like multi-generation failure, if it's happening, it's invisible to me because we're working with second, third, I'm sure there's a fourth generation out there and these are successful businesses. And so that uh, consistency, Lean loves that. When the believers in Lean are certain top management and that top management, you know, moves on, you know, then, then quite honestly, we don't have the reference. I'll, I'll speak about it in plain terms. References are everything to us. And, you know, there's companies that we did amazing things with, but then somebody else came in or somebody left just for the normal reasons. Hey, this is another job somewhere else. You know, I was the COO and, and I moved on to some bigger, better job. And then some of the things that we work with them on. And, and it's not all just lean. It could be, could be planning, could be sales and operations planning or forecasting. It could be something as, as specific as forecasting that we were working with them. And they had a great forecast and they were making it more accurate, driving into their business to plan labor and inventory and capital expenditures. And then they're gone. And the people that replace them just, you know, they, didn't, they don't see the value of it or they didn't create it with me. So it's, it's not so much the mistakes I think once you get over a certain point with us, it's working. And, and this is not entirely true. I can think of cases that it didn't work. Uh, but honestly, that's probably more our fault than the company's fault. I think consistency is um, discipline. If I think of my clients that are into physical fitness, chances are lean's going to work really well in their company. By the way, this is another thing I just didn't think of until just now. But a lot of my clients that have decades of lean experience I'm pretty sure they go to the gym most mornings. <laughs> so. That's an interesting point. Interesting fact to share there. Who would think? Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, I never put that together until just now, Raj. That's, a, that's the second one. You mentioned the uh, multi-generational family businesses. I believe 
CK Supply is a client of yours. That's right. So very successful, multi-generational family business. We plan on uh, visiting one of their warehouses in, in a month or two to, to take a look at uh, what they've implemented with your knowledge. Yep. Would you say the vast majority of companies that see success applying lean and having it stick then are privately owned companies? That's kind of what I was hearing private versus public, but is that the differentiator? There are uh, corporate, I call them corporate clients, that their corporate culture has embraced lean. So, so no, it's not that. I mean, there are definitely companies that at the cultural level, it's there. The problem is, and I heard somebody say this, in, in order for lean to work, you got to change the culture, but you can never change the culture. And that seems like a, at best a complete mystery to me. But the more I spend time in this, the more I understand that it, it seeps in. As a consultant, if somebody came to me and, and said, Mitch, I want you to make my company lean, I would say, I can't. This is hard for me to, 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 to say on a podcast here, but I can't. I can help you implement projects that use lean. I can show you how to use lean. The actual cultural part of it that's got to seep in over time and take hold. And so there are companies, corporate companies, that have embraced this wholeheartedly. Uh, and in order to get ahead, you got to believe. So, so there is management turnover, but, and again, external, internal doesn't really matter. It's one of the checkbox things. Like, hey, we do, and it's not just lean, it could be sales and operations planning, could be supply chain thinking, you know, the broad concept of partnerships, whatever it is. It's one of the checkboxes. you got to believe in this in order for us to hire you. It's not as absolute private versus public. Uh, I would say it's more management turnover without it being criteria that makes some of these strong business principles become a true part of the culture versus something that, you know, hey, 10 years ago we did that. If the culture that can successfully implement lead starts with that deep and profound respect for the people that do the work, is that where you start if you want to correct your culture, for lack of a better term, so that you can successfully implement lean? Or is that, you know, just the end point of having the right culture in place? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer. I would say, to be perfectly honest, we start with identify and eliminate non-valuated work. So honestly, we start with the idea of you know, when it comes down to it, you showed up here for this reason. You want things to be faster, lower cost, whatever those negatives are, but, you know, lower absenteeism, you know, less inventory. You want that, and the way to get that is through identify and eliminate non-valuated work. The deep and profound respect for the people that do the work is, is almost a, I don't know what to call it, I'm not even sure I know what this word means, but it's a qualifier. So I'll tell people, okay, you want me here for that, by the way, this is only going to work long after I'm gone if this is the kind of person you are. And if we feel you're not, and I'm, by the way, dealing with that right now where I'm pretty sure that somebody I'm, who wants us to work with them is not, that's a hard conversation that we have to have because we don't want to, six months later, somebody call and say, yeah, it pretty much fell apart. So I can't make that be there. And it's not something that's a result of lean. So I guess maybe it is actually what you said. It kind of always has to be there in order for you to be a successful lean company. If you don't have that, we like to say it's, it's impossible or really hard to be lean. 
And that can be there regardless of the size of the company, right? Like you've seen massive corporations that truly have that in place and as well as the smaller mid-sized companies. Yep. And the opposite. So there's plenty of, of the reverse. If I can, you know, glass half empty kind of guy. I'm an operations management guy, Raj. So, you know, glass half empty is has got to be the way that I, so we see that reverse in all kinds of companies. And it's kind of, you know, the more you do this, as I think about it, but again, 25 years, the less comfortable that becomes when I see it. it used to be, I could put up with that more you know, okay, well, maybe. And, and now it's, it's kind of like, well, you know, that's not respectful. And, and I'm here, that's not part of my world. So, but when you see it on the positive side, it feels great. That makes a lot of sense. I do have three more questions for you. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're a busy guy. Number one, we ask everyone that comes on the show for what I call a hole in one, which is this, just your biggest piece of advice that someone can implement today, either in their business or their personal life. You know, the, the idea of, uh, and I'm going to say it here, the idea of delivering on your strategy. I think a lot of people like, and certainly in your position, so I'm, I'm going to focus this on executives. I think that's the audience here. And it's certainly the people that, w- that I'm working with personally. I, I would say in addition to having the right strategy, figure out how to deliver on your strategy. And then you get the whole thing. I have no doubt that people are thinking strategically, you know, what markets and, but I don't think most companies think about how do I deliver on that strategy that ultimately customers, patients, clients, they have to get what they need from you. And when that becomes part of your equation, that's the hold in one. That's how things really work and customers succeed and and then business succeed, the economy grows, you know, th- things really happen when we get to that place. That's a great point. And I think it ties into my second last question, which is how can people get in touch with you? Because if someone were to be thinking about execution and perhaps they're, they're struggling with it, I'm sure they'd want to get in touch with someone like yourself or Supply Velocity. Yeah, so we talked about visibility, and uh, we apply that to the internet. So if you look up Mitch Milstein, Supply Velocity, Lean Consultant St. Louis, uh, we should be pretty easy to find. But um, my email address is mitch at supplyvelocity.com. But you just look up Mitch Milstein. You're either going to get my LinkedIn profile or you get Supply Velocity's contact page, and then you could uh, email me and, and we can help you out. I'll add that in uh, the show notes as well so that it's visible for viewers or listeners. Uh, My last question, this is one where I'm not entirely sure if you have an answer or not, but I just really wanted to pick your brain on it. So the St. Louis region, very strategically positioned, you know, center of the U.S. population. We have a lot of uh, logistical strengths. If you were able to wave a magic wand and either change a few things about St. Louis or, or fix a few things, what would you do in order to position St. Louis to become an industrial powerhouse, if you will? I have a little bit of a long answer for you. And, and by the way, there's actually a woman who's working on this, and her name's Mary Lamy, if I can give a shout out. And what she's trying to do is get the Illinois portion of the St. Louis region and the Missouri portion of the St. Louis region to work together to promote the logistical advantages of that. And manufacturing, by the way, drives logistics. We used to think that was true. And then we actually said, no, no, it's actually warehousing distribution that drives that. And there was a lot of work about 10 years ago that thought that you want to be a distribution hub. Louisville, Kentucky is that way. 
other parts of the country, but it really is manufacturing, and that's, it's kind of technical, but basically inbound trucking rates match outbound trucking rates, thumbs up, that's a winner, and manufacturing is actually what drives that. But manufacturing wants inexpensive transportation, inexpensive electricity, knowledgeable labor, and so the whole idea of the region working together, and so the snap the fingers, and I can't impact this, uh, so by the way, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. So this isn't easy to answer because I'm very much of, um, you know, work on what you could work on. So mine is creating knowledge in the community primarily. But if all the municipalities in the St. Louis region lo- at large could either kind of combine, <laughs> you know, and, and there's work on that. And I don't mean that from a political sense. I am capitalist, you know, to my core. If we could get Illinois, which has a different culture, as you know, Raj, and Missouri, do like they could as might as well be on opposite ends of the country, but they're smacked together. In, it's called St. Louis. If everybody could work together, then we would bring that manufacturing work uh, here into St. Louis, and then the service operations companies would benefit. The distribution companies would benefit. Like you said, we've got the rivers, we got the rail, we got the highways, we got surplus uh, airport capacity. We got everything that we need in order to be successful if we collaborate together to make it work. I appreciate that answer, even though it's not an area that you spend a lot of time on. I just wanted to really hear from you what you thought there. So, Mitch, I really appreciate your time. I learned a lot about operations management and lean, and I'm sure the listeners have as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for making me think of some things that I did not think of walking in the door. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Raj. If you're a high-quality company interested in reaching the high-performing audience of Country Club Conversations, let's see how we can work together. To explore sponsorship opportunities, email advertising at storyboardliving.com. That's advertising at storyboardliving.com. <laughs>